This hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Very excited to have you back with us this week. We have a Pop Talk episode today. And let me catch you up since the last Pop Talk episode before the holidays. So we have brother of the show on today and we now have seen Rise of Skywalker. We both loved the Eddie Murphy SNL episode. And we've seen the CW Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover, which ended last week, which we talked a lot about in the last episode. Today, we talk Star Wars, late night talk shows, and Crisis. And we start with Star Wars. So here's brother of the show and me talking all that pop. So, The Rise of Skywalker, the final Star Wars film, in this storyline at least, in this saga, has been a polarizing one. People who loved The Last Jedi hated this one. Critics hated this one. Uh, the box office wasn't what studio had hoped. Yes, it passed a billion dollars worldwide, but it's not very likely to make the $300 million worldwide to surpass or at least meet The Last Jedi's worldwide box office. And it's a far cry from the $2 billion that Force Awakens made. So, Trey, we talked about our issues with the film when we left the theater. But now that some time has passed, what are your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are actually still the same as when we walked out of the theater. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm still grading on a curve. Uh, because of everything kind of behind the scenes and, and, and what happened with Last Jedi that J.J. Uh, Abrams had to make sense of. Because mm -hmm. uh, you have all of this stuff in, in Last Jedi, uh, whereas we talked about last time, Ryan Johnson was trying to subvert expectations and the past doesn't matter and all this stuff that was set up, we're going to ignore mm -hmm. from, uh, from Force Awakens. And so now you had to try to find a way to tie everything up and, and pay off things that had been set up previously. Things, some of that should have been paid off in Last Jedi, mm -hmm. but since it was ignored and thrown away, they had to be paid off in Rise of Skywalker. So I think most of the people who hate Rise of Skywalker hate it because they're just looking at it as that singular movie. Yeah, they didn't necessarily they're, they're, like Force Awakens either. Yeah. Right. And, and I think um, you and I are looking at what J.J. Abrams was handed and, and, and the fact that he had to try to do something with that. And, you know, whatever choices J.J. Abrams would have made, I don't think anyone would have been satisfied because, you know, Last Jedi ignores what was set up before and then you've got to either ignore Last Jedi or embrace it. But you can't really do both, and the studios seem to tamper based on stuff we've read. Not sure where they tampered, where they didn't. Hard to make sense of that. Right. But uh, but with all of that, it was just going to be impossible 
Uh, and so I think the only way you can grade it is on a curve based on, uh, you know, all the behind the scenes drama. Uh, I will say there are things that you can still blame Abrams for because <laughs> there's a lot of setup that was explained away like two seconds later, like this big build up and like, oh, okay, well, C-3PO isn't really dead. <laughs> <laughs> Chewbacca isn't really dead and it's like right. immediate. It's not like yeah. a couple of acts later where it's, it's two minutes later. Like, right. <laughs> At least with uh, with Chewbacca. And, right. you know, spoilers if someone has not seen Rise of Skywalker, which there are plenty. Um, but if you haven't seen it, you really probably don't care. <laughs> and it's also not a major spoiler because uh, two minutes later they solve it. So, you know, we saved you that two minutes. <laughs> right. Well, what were your thoughts? Well, I've landed on a C- minus for the movie, and I have only seen it once so maybe if i saw it again it would be different but i think that's where it's at for me and i think before i was saying a c um without thinking it would probably go much lower i don't know it's a cc minus my issue was that it did feel like too much was stuffed in and that's not to make the Spider-Man 3 complaint that there are too many characters or there's too much stuff in this movie <laughs> Because you look at the Avengers movies, the last couple have had many characters and a bunch of stuff going on, and they're great. So I don't think that the amount of characters or storyline is the problem. The problem is in execution. But J.J. Abrams was trying to tie off threads from Force Awakens that didn't get set up or were disregarded completely in The Last Jedi, and he was trying to acknowledge the original Star Wars trilogy and just tie all of this in a bow, and that's tough to do, and I acknowledge that. So, yeah, grading on a curve is, I think, fair, but he did he did ignore some details from Last Jedi himself, and the, my issue with that is... Last Jedi still happened. You can't just ignore it. And you can't just, you know, turn things around all of a sudden to suit your needs. I get why Abrams would do that, because he was left with something that threw off the storylines he established in Force Awakens. It only makes sense to try to tie those those uh, bows together from Force Awakens. But it still hurts storytelling. The execution of the trilogy was sloppy, and I didn't entirely... I, I don't entirely fault him or Ryan Johnson for that. The producers deserve a lot of blame here. So that's that's where my thoughts are on the movie. I mentioned in the last Pop Talk episode that this franchise had four good movies and four not-so-good movies. And so it came down to this one to the tournament of this franchise overall as a worthy one of all the attention it's gotten. What do you feel about the overall franchise's worth now that this trilogy is over with this, this final film? I think because of the original trilogy, it's still high worth. And then you've got uh, like The Mandalorian, which I, I haven't seen yet, but I know you've watched. You know, there are still things about Star Wars that, that make it great. The fact that the prequels were underwhelming for the most part, and the mm -hmm. fact that now the, the, the sequels have their problems don't detract from the original um, and, and just to go back to something you just said in retrospect I don't actually think Abrams fully ignored what happened in Last Jedi that's I think he, fair yeah 
I think he directly uh, spoke to it. Like mm-hmm. Luke, the Force Ghost in Force Awakens, I'm sorry, in uh, Rise of Skywalker, said he was wrong in how he approached things as we saw depicted in Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. And Ryan Johnson, to me, depicted Luke as figuring that out himself at the end of Last Jedi. So I actually think that was consistent. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like most people have been reading that or interpreting it as uh, an FU to Ryan Johnson. Right, but I feel like the FUs to Force Awakens and Last Jedi were much bigger than the FUs in in Force Awakens, if you can even fairly call them FUs. Right, and and like I said, I think think that that moment of of Luke saying he's wrong was actually already something Ryan Johnson had Luke discover Mm -hmm. in, in Last Jedi. Uh, and the the whole Snoke thing, and uh, the the change in whether or not uh, uh, Ray's parents meant anything, it was handled in a way to acknowledge what was said before, and just oh that was a lie or that was wrong or whatever, as opposed to just ignoring it. So I mm-hmm. I think he handled I think J J Abrams handled it more diplomatically and, and addressed, but it does make the storytelling disjointed. And and not none of these three sequels was connected to one another in, right. in any real way, right? Which which again helps diminish the worth of, of movies that are not the original trilogy. But I still think that that's still so powerful that it's a big a big deal. You know, it's, it's got worth culturally. Mm. I think so. I mean, it's been such a part of the zeitgeist for the last forty some years. So. Yeah, it 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 does have a lot. I loved Force Awakens and the original trilogy. I do find it hard to say I liked the other movies. Episode three and Last Jedi have their good moments, but um, the other two prequels are hot garbage. And Rise of Skywalker is kind of an eye movie to me. Like you know, it's eye. It's not great. So I'm not sure really where they'll land. I, I, it's right now because it's fresh. It's ending on like a disappointing note for me, to the point that I'm even wondering if, uh, you know, like, will I really be excited to show this to my future kids? You know, but I, I'll definitely show them the original three. But I don't know how excited I'm. I am at this point to be like, oh, I can't wait to watch all nine of these movies with my kids. Like, I don't, if the, if this trilogy was great, even with the prequels, I would have been excited, but, uh, nah, you know, I, yeah. right now I'm not there. It's, yeah. It's definitely just a can't wait for the, the original three. It's like the, the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. Mm-hmm. It's really only the first two I'd want to show my kids, <laughs> you know? So it's, it doesn't diminish the quality of the first two, and, and the first one right. is, is is the one. Uh, so, so that's how I would view Star Wars. Um, it's really the script. I don't know what it is about those original three where the scripting came together exactly right, and maybe it's partially because Lucas wasn't the only voice <laughs> right. shaping it in, in the beginning, mm-hmm. and it was the right other voices. But once he took complete control of the prequels, that seemed to derail it a little bit. And then, uh, to your point, uh, Kathleen Kennedy and that team didn't seem to do what Feige's been doing with the mm-hmm. MCU, which is to make sure that, yeah, each I think too many people say that MCU's cookie cutter. I, I don't think that's true. Each director has been able to do 
his or her thing mm-hmm. as they saw fit, but in a way that still fits into the larger narratives. And I think that shows just how skilled Feige is that Kathleen Kennedy, who was involved in all this stuff before, uh, still wasn't able to pull something as cohesive together uh, for the for these sequels. Right. Moving on to the next topic. Um, it's a late night talk show topic because how can I not talk about that on this podcast? And a little backstory: back in the nineties, there was the whole late night wars debacle, starting with Johnny Carson getting pushed out of the Tonight Show. But Jay and Dave and the ratings wars was such a big thing, and then how Arsenio would uh, played a part in that. The press loved to report it because there was a lot of animosity (laughs) within the story. So it seemed like something they could sensationalize. And then again, that happened when Conan and Leno had their situation. Many in the press still report ratings winners and talk about like who's number one. But does it really matter in today's landscape? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, obviously ratings matter in the sense that that's how you make your money. You know, mm-hmm. more viewership means more advertising dollars, et cetera, et cetera. But as far as who's number one or who's number two, that that's where I say it doesn't matter. Um, I, I remember I went to an event when I was in grad school where Les Moonves was talking. And, mm-hmm. and he was talking about, this is back when Letterman and Leno were still uh, the main two late night guys. And, uh, Letterman was number two and had been for a number of times. He was number one at the very beginning. Leno gets Hugh Grant and is number one the rest of the way uh, after the Hugh Grant uh, sex scandal. Mm-hmm. And CBS was making a ton of money off of Letterman at, in the number two position. Right. And, and they were smart enough to figure out that being number two isn't bad if you can make the money. And, and obviously ABC's figured that out too because Kimmel's always been behind right. NBC and, and CBS. Right. Uh, so, you know, yes, be nice to be number one, but, you know, Pepsi's not exactly crying about being number two to Coke. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and you can name a bunch of other examples like that. I, I think that whole sports way of looking at things, of being the champ, has has tainted how a lot of business is done mm-hmm. uh, in, instead of actually just trying to put good product out there that can make you money. I wholeheartedly agree, and uh, glad that you mentioned the uh, situation that Les Moonves was talking about because I've been saying for a long time, hey, why is everyone making such a big deal out of number two? Letterman got paid more than Leno, and he was number two. You know, like he was number one for like a year or two, but from 1994 until he said goodbye, except for a brief period when Conan was on The Tonight Show, Letterman was number two. This whole notion, I think you're right, that it's just coming from this who's number one and who's, you know, like it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. And to further point out why it doesn't matter, let's talk about this now. Now, Colbert has said publicly, and I think I've mentioned it on this podcast a couple of times, that the most boring thing would be a late night war with him and Jimmy. It would be like Jimmy versus Steven. That would be the most boring thing. And he's right. 
but yet that hasn't stopped people from talking about it, where I've even seen people say online stuff like, oh, it's pretty cool that Colbert is almost doubling Jimmy Fallon's numbers. So Jimmy Fallon, let's just go with numbers. Um, according to TV by the numbers, Jimmy Fallon's at $2 million. That's on average what he is for the year. Stephen That's Colbert. Overall? Yeah, I believe so. Overall. Yes, yes. Yeah. Now, there have been some weeks where he won and, and you know, whatever, but overall, um, he was, for, for I guess the last season, he was uh, at $2 million. And Colbert was at 3.5 million. Okay, so that's Nielsen rating numbers, whatever. But let's take a look at something that really matters in today's landscape. YouTube. So on YouTube, Late Show with Stephen Colbert has 7.08 million subscribers. And if you look at the videos that they've posted, the uh, one that's most viewed has 38 million views. The number two highest uh, viewed one has 21 million views. Now let's go to The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon's YouTube page. 23.2 million subscribers. Okay, three times the amount of subscribers. Their number one viewed video is 144 million, has 144 million views. Number two, 101 million, right? Uh, just to get uh, put things in perspective, the 31st highest viewed video or most popular video on the Tonight Show YouTube page has 38 million. That's Colbert's number one. So these are the actual metrics, not just YouTube, but the ratings and the online presence. Those are the real metrics that really matter. Both shows obviously have a huge impact. So that's all that really, who cares who's number one? I'm not saying that The Tonight Show is better than Colbert or that like, oh, he's the real winner here. I'm saying let's put this in perspective. Um, both of them are getting much more attention online than they are on television. And the Tonight Show is getting a lot more. They were the first late-night talk show to hit 20 million subscribers. So does it really matter whose ratings are number one? That just seems so antiquated now uh, in this day and age. Well, speaking of antiquated, kind of just, just furthering your point, the way Nielsen measures is is wrong anyway. Like, the entire industry knows it, but it's just, kind of locked into how Nielsen's always done it. Mm -hmm. uh, but but even when I, so I, you know, for people listening who don't know, I worked at ESPN from 1999 to 03. So that era. So it was a different landscape. Uh, but the point in bringing that up is we had presentations from the uh, research team, and we talk, had open discussions about how uh, our numbers – we're underrepresenting our viewership because Nielsen didn't count dorm rooms and it didn't count mm -hmm. sports bars and right. stuff like that. And sports obviously are the types of things that are watched in those settings. Mm -hmm. And so we were vastly undercounted. I would say the same is probably true about late night shows. When, when I was in college, we all watched Letterman in the main uh, room mm -hmm. and we weren't counted by Nielsen. 
if I were to guess, there'd be some other kind of similar divide. I, I wouldn't be able to guess which show today's college kids watch if they even consume it that way. But but there there are those folks not being counted. And then you take into account, uh, and, and this is what your YouTube numbers help prove, the different ways that younger viewers are consuming now. They're mm-hmm. not looking on TV as measured by Nielsen. They're looking either in small bites on YouTube or maybe they're streaming the whole episode on Hulu or, uh, or on the actual NBC or CBS app or whatever. And, and those aren't all being counted. So we don't even really know what the viewership is. We just know right. what the ratings are. Right. And, and those are two different things. Right. And another thing, and I, I will say there's a caveat to whether or not this thing I'm about to say matters because it was from a like a gossip. It was like page six or some garbage like that. But there's talk uh, all like not all the time, but for a few years, every once in a while, I would hear this talk about how, you know, some of the suits at NBC are worried about Jimmy Fallon. And then when he started losing to Colbert, there was all this. uh discussion about like you know oh oh, scramble let's get a different ep in there and they had some producers change up and this new ep thinks that jimmy fallon needs to reinvent himself and he's like all worried and da 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 and it's like do you not understand that nbc still makes money from that youtube page (laughs) you know like you put the show out let it be earnestly what it is if this is true uh, you know, that I'm saying these executives are being dumb because just look at the impact that it's having. It doesn't matter who's number one in the ratings because look at this impact online. That's where your money is. That's where your attention is coming from. So this this whole, oh, he needs to change everything – if he changed everything, do you think he's going to stay at 23 million subscribers? He'd likely go down if they went to some old style of doing the show. Just a dumb idea. Let it be what it is and be comfortable at number two like CBS was with Letterman. Now, I'm sure they're going to make the argument that it's like, oh, affiliates. End of the day, you still have to look at it as what is happening in reality. And a big part of that reality is what's happening on YouTube. Yeah, and I, I will say, I, I also cannot say whether or not it's true that those executives had those reactions, but there's evidence to suggest that NBC has, has been the network most focused on being number one, and I think in large part, because they were number one in right. so many categories for so long, right. that not being number one anymore uh, hurt their pride. If mm-hmm. you look at the Today Show and, and the shakeups that happened with the Today Show, their numbers were sliding before... Um, Meredith Vieira left. And, and, mm-hmm. and so when they brought in Ann Curry, it was just furthering that slide that was already happening. You just can't stay number one forever. Right. But Ann Curry comes in and, and GMA overtakes them. They blamed it on Curry, plus whatever backstage stuff may or may not have been happening between you know the, the anchors. Right. I don't know what's true there, so I don't want to give too much weight to it. But... But they blame Ann Curry for that. And so they, they move her out and bring Savannah Guthrie in. But the ratings continued to slide after that. But they didn't blame Savannah. They couldn't. Same right. thing happened with Meet the Press. Ratings slid a little bit when uh, David Gregory became the permanent host. 
they blamed it on him, pushed him out, brought Chuck Tide in. And I think the ratings still slid a little bit before yeah. they stabilized. Yeah, now they, I think there's they, talk about removing him. I mean, that was rumor mill stuff, but... Yeah, and, and and so they keep doing that, and that's what happened to Conan. Ratings slid a little bit, in, in part, because, and, and this is why you're right, that they can't change who Jimmy is. There was, and, and some of this is Conan thinking that to host the Tonight Show, he had to change himself. Mm-hmm. But they put Conan in place because he was loved for what he was doing on late night. Right. And so then you, you make him do something different. And the people who loved him the most weren't as into the show. Mm-hmm. And, and the folks who were more into Leno weren't as into the show. Right. Uh, but, but he was still not horrible in the ratings, but there was all this talk of, Oh, you're killing everybody. And, now they put Jay Leno was at ten o'clock was probably the bigger issue <laughs> yeah. than Conan at eleven thirty, and so all of these knee jerk reactions to not being number one kept messing NBC up, but they kept not learning that the knee jerk reactions are screwing them up more. Exactly, agreed. Well, let's move on to our final topic, and it is. The Crisis on Infinite Earths series on the CW. Uh, we talked about what we wanted to see and what we hoped to see. And um, since then, we've now seen all five episodes. And I've also now read the comic book. Uh, I read that in between seeing the third installment and the, the final two. So now that we've seen everything, what are your thoughts? So I think it's it ended way stronger than it began. Uh, the first three parts, uh, it's fitting that this is the same episode where we were talking about Rise of Skywalker because one, one of the issues with, with both Rise of Skywalker and the first three parts of Crisis is that they introduced these plot pieces that didn't necessarily make sense and they tried to like push you on to the next one quickly so you didn't notice mm-hmm. that it didn't make sense. <laughs> Uh, and so from that standpoint, I think Crisis was, was very disappointing. But the final two parts were strong enough to n- not put Crisis like last in the rating, rankings. Because mm-hmm. if, if you had asked me where Crisis ranks based on the first three parts, it would have been towards the bottom mm-hmm. um, of my ranking of all the crossovers. Probably comes to about middle because of the final two parts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one thing I think will, will be helpful as we continue talking is to explain the differences between the co- the reason why the comic crisis on infinite earths happened versus the TV version. Uh, so the, the comic books had gotten convoluted mm-hmm. going into the eighties. They had a bunch of writers who were doing inconsistent storylines about the different characters and different timelines and, then they came into different Earths, and so everything was confusing. And so there was a decision that they needed to uh, make it more concise and easy to understand for the reader. And so that's where they decided they're going to kill off these alternate Earths and create a singular uh, origin for all the characters. And that became killing the multiverse and making just one Earth. The TV shows didn't have that problem, uh, because there's going to continue to be a multiverse. DCEU still has to exist. 
alongside the CW shows, alongside Donner's movies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and so they had to have a different conceit, a different reason for being. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they didn't plot that out as well as they needed, even mm-hmm. though they, they teased this in Elseworlds. And so they had a full year to plan, which they typically haven't done with their crossovers. And, and still, I think it wasn't planned. I think they focused too much on cameos and homages and then build a story around these cool cameos we can get and these cool homages we like instead of figuring out the story first and then getting cameos and homages to fit into that. Um, and and that, that's really what brought down the first three parts for me. Interesting. Well, yeah, so I I felt that uh, I felt that too about the first three. Um, there was a sort of slapping it together thing. And, and Guggenheim even said in uh, one of the discussions he had after they were airing was that they he, they took the comic book and they said, oh, let's take that. let's you know, let's use that. Let's use this. And it does sort of feel like, they they instead of saying what is the story that we're trying to tell and let's adapt it to the characters that we have that it was more like what are the elements that happened in the comic book and let's use that here um somehow and that ended up making a convoluted first few episodes now the flash one was strong uh that was the third of them and uh coming right after the first and second installments of this crossover, um, kind of put a little stink on it, you know, but ultimately I think that one was, was a pretty solid one and was kind of no surprise that that was the best of the, of the first three. Um, yeah. Since they, yeah. they're the, the, the strongest in terms of consistency, they're the strongest writers on the flash team mm-hmm. and they're the highest attention to detail. Yeah. Um, but if there's the unofficial episode of Crisis, which is the Black Lightning episode, which technically was not one of the parts of Crisis. Mm-hmm. But that but episode was, was real good. <laughs> right. And it was essentially Crisis 2.5, episode 2.5, because the, the crisis was happening in the background, the red mm-hmm. skies and mm-hmm. everything. And, and and it was the best storytelling of the before the winter break parts. Right. Uh, it really showed us what crisis was doing to an earth instead of just, you know, like the, the way part one started was you see uh, Robert Wolf for a second looking at a newspaper. <laughs> right. It's red skies and it, then the, the earth has disappeared or, or destroyed. Burt Ward, holy red skies of death disappeared. <laughs> yeah. The Titans didn't two characters. They just stood the there with their series. mouth hanging open. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, you got cameos, but they didn't Where's do the anything. story? Yeah, and that there was so much stuff thrown at you and it's like, oh wow, they got them. Oh wow, they got that. Oh wow. But where's the story? You know? So there is an excitement level that they were going for. But when that excitement settled, it felt a little like all sizzle, no steak. And right. um, we needed a little bit more. I'm sure, you know, if if Guggenheim, he would never listen to this podcast. But if he were to hear it, he'd probably just sit there breathing hard, yelling at us. But um, 
but but in in truth, um, there was it, there was a little lacking, and I think some of it was hard for it to match my expectations and anticipation because there was a whole year of going like, oh wow, they're about to really go all out um, for them to sort of bring you, and then um, there's also just the the disappointment that comes from wait a minute why isn't this being set up more clearly and i was really excited for this why isn't it coming more clearly like it should be and so um you know maybe we have to grade it on a curve as well when it comes to like that year of anticipation but still execution wise objectively speaking this wasn't the best told story because they were focusing so much on homage stuff but you know we're talking the last two the ones that just aired after the winter break they were really solid there were things that i was a little disappointed in i wanted more oliver but some awesome stuff happened, namely Ezra Miller and the f- yeah. and, and Grant Gustin both playing the Flash in a scene together. I that got spoiled for me um, mm. a little bit. I, I I didn't get to watch it live because I couldn't watch it live. And the next morning, I just woke up and I was just like, "Oh, what's going on on Instagram?" And this like immediately, like Grant Gustin's posting a picture of the two, and I. I saw it kind of from the corner of my eye and I was like, I see a second flash and I just like, you know, flicked away. I said, ah, let me get off Instagram. Um, and, and I knew in the back of my head, it was like that. I feel like that had to have been Ezra Miller. I didn't see any confirmation. So it was like, ah, I don't know. That might be what they did. If they did that, that's great. Even with that, it was still an amazing moment. And I was just, beside myself with joy watching that scene that was fantastic yeah and then the behind the scenes story that guggenheim told in a couple places was that warner brothers or dc whichever went to guggenheim about that after they were done shooting <laughs> right, they were done shooting like how can we fit this in yeah so that that was interesting because you know you could nitpick it and and say that it was similar to what we're complaining about with the other cameos. But it was so well done Mm -hmm. that even though it didn't necessarily further the story, and it also showed the confusion of being in the Speed Force. Mm -hmm. So I I think it served that purpose. Right. Uh, And and so it was a much better cameo than most of the others, Mm -hmm. if not all of the others. I think it's some... I think Lucifer was was up there. I think Lucifer Lucifer and Ezra Miller... Yeah, those are the top two for me. Probably Ezra Miller, Miller being the first one for me. Mm-hmm. Now, Smallville, uh, you know, we we talked offline about this, but I'm one of the many people who watched Smallville who ha- hated the cameo. <laughs> Not because of the acting. The acting was great. Like Tom Welling and Erica Durant stepped right back into those roles and, and showed why they were loved as those characters, but they basically, the, the writers essentially, and I know they, they take, they, the writers present this as Clark getting his happy ending, but it really betrays the entire 10 years of developing that character and contradicts what was depicted in terms of the future of that character. Cause we had a flash forward in the series finale 
plus a legion of superheroes had come into the a couple of episodes and talked about Clark's future. He, he didn't give up his powers. And, and even if he would have, when he hears that the anti-monitors trying to destroy all universes, he's not just going to shrug his shoulders and walk back into his house. Right. Because Clark, even Clark without his powers on Smallville in several episodes still tried to save the day. This dude was like, ah, well, <laughs> and, and yeah. so it was, it was unsatisfying as a Smallville viewer. Yeah, I can see that. I didn't watch Smallville, but even I was like, oh, I hope they don't kill that character off because I feel kind of weird with them taking a nine, the, the lead of a nine-year or ten-year series and killing it off just like that. Uh, so I'm glad that they didn't kill him off, but yeah, taking his powers and having him just be like, yeah, I'm not going to join the fight was a bad choice. Um, mm-hmm. So overall, I was still, it's and you're right, Talking about this in the same episode as Star Wars makes a lot of sense. It very much is a, there's a, a, a hinge of some disappointment there uh, overall because I wanted some things to be a little more something. Um, but these last couple episodes were very good. Um, and the third one was, was, so, was so solid as well. And uh, then the Black Lightning one was very good. So overall, I, I did like it. Um, and I... I probably had less issues than you did with it. Um, just to go over how we ranked them in the last episode, we landed on um, the crossovers of the CW being uh, duets at seven, Legends of Today, Legends of Yesterday at six, Elseworlds five, World's Finest four, Flash versus Arrow slash Brave and the Bold at three, Invasion at two, and Crisis on Earth X at number one. Where does Crisis on Infinite Earths land in this ranking? So, World's Finest four, Most World's five, I put this in between those two. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's because of the story being convoluted, uh, and the fact that this is supposed to be the most epic thing they will probably ever do. I, I know that Guggenheim does not like to be compared to Infinity War and Endgame because they only had the budget of like the catering. As he put it, yeah. <laughs> um, but in terms of ramp up and, and, and epic nature and, and what the story was supposed to do, that's why people make the comparison. Right. Uh, and, and I think it's valid in, in that sense. And it just didn't have the scope that um, that Invasion had. It didn't have the scope that Earth-X had. And, and it should have had more uh, than those two. If it had been equal, because again, you know, there's so many production things that I don't know anything about in terms of limitations and budget and all that. So if it had been equal to Earth-X in terms of scale, it still would have been far superior to what we got. They mm-hmm. kept sidelining people. Barry and Oliver were both barely in the first few parts. Mm-hmm. Oliver had a good part one arc, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after that, we didn't see him again, except as a body lying on a table mm-hmm. until part four, for the most part, in a quick scene in part three. And Barry was barely there. And they kept doing these side missions that didn't push the story forward. That was the big part that what I keep saying about the first three parts being lacking. They weren't dealing with crisis. 
Mm-hmm. It was either people sitting around talking or people doing this side thing that, that didn't push crisis forward and people disappearing and reappearing. Uh, there were only two battles in the first three parts. And again, that could be budget, but, but it was still like, this, this is, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, but it didn't feel like any of the characters thought this was it. Yeah. Yeah, so story-wise, I think it's where things are maybe are lacking for me. But in terms of what they pulled off, I say my hat's off to them. Because when I look at just the scope of the production and all the moving parts that they had to figure out, they did a phenomenal job. Um, just bringing in all those people and, and um, you know, that was tough. But I do wish that the story was a little cleaner and uh, more directly told. But, you know, also get how the, some of the limitations of production are going to, not just monetarily, but just like when people are available, can affect the creative direction of a story. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I felt like it needed a little more time cooking and, and getting ironed out. And I would put it in between World's Finest and Elseworlds as well. And I, I really enjoyed Elseworlds, but this one is so epic and had so many moments that I, I would put it above that one. And World's Finest is just like untouchable good almost, you know, like that one's mm-hmm. just so fun. I mean, it has a couple of silly things in it, but so does the first episode. It's all the Supergirl silliness that gets brought into these crossovers. And I love the character of Supergirl, but this like, wasn't it world's finest where like Jimmy meets flash and he like sad sacking around. Yeah. Cause he thought that Kara was going right. to end up. That was so very, that was so corny <laughs> and so childish and immature. And so was all the stuff with Lena in the first episode of uh, crisis on infinite earths. But otherwise, you know, like those things aside, um, story, story, epic, hard to tell. There's a, there are a lot of things. I wish it was a little cleaner told, but production value, they did an amazing job production wise. Yeah, I, I think you're kinder to this than I am, even though we have the same <laughs> ranking. Cause you're, you're saying a little cleaner should have been a lot. It should have been a lot cleaner. No, no, no. I'm, I'm mincing words here saying it should have been a little, it should have been cleaner. They had plenty yeah. of time to work on it. Um, and, and make it cleaner, and it really is just like putting a couple of lines here or there, <laughs> or giving and, and, people, and, certain characters certain urgency. Yeah, and even scenes that were unnecessary, like uh, again going back to how they figured out which homages they wanted to do first and built the story second, is on Argo when the wave was about to hit, they send baby Jonathan Clark and and Lois's child, baby Jonathan on on a pod to earth. So it's supposed to mirror the sink. They even use some of the same dialogue from Donner's movie when they sent Kal-El to earth. Mm -hmm. And they also were treating that as an homage to the comics where earth threes, Lex Luthor, who's a good guy is married to Lois and they send Alexander away from earth just before the anti-matter wave hits. Mm -hmm. And Alexander becomes a big figure in saving the multiverse in crisis. So it was supposed to mirror those two, but the scene really made no sense because here's Argo. They had already been blown off of Krypton when Krypton was destroyed. And then they almost got destroyed in a season long arc on Supergirl. Now they're 
uh, having they, another moment like that. that yeah. But they didn't plan for it. After two almost world destroying moments, they didn't <laughs> they build more than one, one pod right. for a baby. <laughs> and then the, the pod goes off to Earth 16, which was took, took place in 2046. And the legends all of a sudden assume that in their season one episode, when they went to Star City in 2046, it must have been Earth 16. Well, it made no sense for them to assume that. Yeah, the there's a lot year. of things within that storyline um, that it seemed like, well, we need to, let's do this thing. And then uh, we'd also like to have this other thing. So let's just find a way to connect the dots here. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what they did. And that's what it felt like. And, you know, if you're in a vacuum looking at that scene where Sarah's uh, talking to that Oliver we never knew, it's a great scene, but in context of the story, didn't necessarily – it wasn't really necessary. Um, right. It great didn't push scene. any characters forward. Right. It didn't push the storyline the, forward. You know, and they don't use – you know, Alexander's a huge part of the comic book and the, the baby uh, in the crossover is not at all it's just like oh right. we got him and then he's just like oh, you don't see him again so it's those sort of things did deviate so much that well that could have been used for better storytelling but overall i still will will put them uh in that location because I, I in that spot in that uh number five spot mm -hmm. out of the eight now crossovers that have happened real quick one other character who we've talked about offline who wasn't necessary was ryan Choi. Uh, yeah, I, I liked the character. I liked the character. I liked the I actor. Liked the actor, I, I but they did bring the him actor. out of nowhere. Like, why, right. why not it, make that Cisco? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like bring that, bring, bring, and and some of that is because they couldn't. Well, I don't know. They were saying like they couldn't have uh, some characters in, some actors in, because they would have to get paid extra. But if you don't have the Ryan Choi character, and you instead have it as like Luke from Batwoman, or Cisco from Flash, then I guess that would probably even out the budget. But nevertheless, there were some things like that that could have been cut for them to have uh, told this story a little more clean. But to end on the Super Friends theme, with them actually forming the Justice League. That was nice. Best moments. And Black Lightning's in it. Right. He's he's a part of this Justice League. And they also like acknowledge, the again, the uh, uh, Green Lantern Corps. So... We're going to see there are a couple more episodes of Era. We'll see what they do with the Oliver Queen character. Uh, is he dead for good? Question mark. We'll have to find out. Uh, same back channel. Same Arrow channel. Uh, well, Trey, thanks for being on the podcast again to talk about all this nerdy pop talk. Well, thank you for having me. And there it is, another pop culture episode with Brother of the Show. I like doing these, so we're going to do more of them. We have some ideas for the one to do next month, so be on the lookout for that. We also have some great guests coming up, and one of them is an improv hero of mine. More details on that to come. And we also want to say a big Happy birthday to one of the supporters of the podcast, Greg Harris. He is a great guy, and today is his birthday. Very excited that we are releasing an episode on his birthday. This is our gift to you because of your gift and support. Hey, you can support us. Go to thereitispod.com, and you can click on the support tab. 
You can also subscribe to our newsletter. It's a comedy lifestyle newsletter, and it's free. And at There It Is Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Links in bio. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. Thank <laughs> you.